Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today's conversation is about bullying. These days, when we're not talking about gun control, the hand-wringing conversation of choice seems to be all about bullying. It's driving kids to suicide, it's testing families in schools, it may even be behind some of the horrific shootings we've witnessed lately. But for all our talk about bullying, many basic questions remain. Is it a growing epidemic or just something that we're now starting to pay attention to? Where do you draw the line between bullying and girls and boys just being girls and boys? And what do we do when bullying takes place not in the classroom, but through social media? These are some of the questions at the heart of Emily Bazelon's new book, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Bazelon is a writer and an editor for the online magazine Slate and a senior research scholar at Yale Law School. She's talking with Tablet Magazine's Liel Leibowitz, who himself has taken an interest in the subject of bullying in a column he writes for the site. Emily, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, the subject of your book is is immensely complicated. It involves so much research and, and policy analysis and so many, you know, reams and reams of details. And one of the most winning things, I think, about what you ended up doing is rather than focusing on this sort of cut and dry uh, data, actually choosing three individual uh, teenagers, Monique, Jacob, and Flannery, and, and addressing this story through them or this issue through them. So uh, tell us a little bit about them and how you came uh, upon them. Well, I wanted to pick kids who really would allow me to explore different facets of bullying. Monique is a girl who lives in Middletown, Connecticut, and I was interested in her because she had really experienced prolonged bullying by a couple of different groups of kids at her school. Started on the bus, which is typical because the bus can be this kind of no man's land between Mm -hmm. home and school that's hard to police. And the bullying really escalated over time. It included some really mean um, and threatening uh, messages on MySpace and Facebook. And her mother pulled Monique out of school in the winter of Monique's seventh grade because she was just incredibly frustrated with the principal and the superintendent and felt like she really had no choice. That's a pretty dramatic step to take. And so I was interested in both what led up to that and then what happened to Monique afterward. Uh, And then Jacob has a whole different set of issues. Jacob is um, a really great kid who, in seventh and eighth grade, hadn't come out yet, but was doing things like dyeing his hair pink and painting his fingernails. And he lives in a rural district in upstate New York, in which that was super unusual behavior that kind of freaked the other kids out. So what happened to Jacob was that because the other kids saw what he was doing as so out of the norm, they really started to harass him. And the school took some steps to try to help him. But in the view of his parents, it was just really inadequate. And so by the end of ninth grade, Jacob was basically about to just go to be homeschooled because the principal told him, according to his dad, that he couldn't guarantee Jacob's safety. Mm -hmm. And so Jacob sued. The New York Civil Liberties Union represented him, and he successfully sued his school district in an action that, among other things, pushed the district into adopting uh, sort of broader remedies to um, hopefully help other kids. And finally, Flannery, part of a of a, of a very well-known case and tragic case. Right. So Flannery was one of the kids who was criminally charged after the suicide of a 15-year-old girl named Phoebe Prince in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And what happened in that case was that um, 
I mean, I argue there was a really complicated underlying set of circumstances, but essentially six kids at South Hadley High were blamed for Phoebe's death in a way that they were directly facing long prison sentences for. So um, that story is about Flannery's perspective on what happened to her. Before we go any further, you know, reading the book or even just listening to these stories right now, do you tell these stories? Uh, it sounds like there's a whole taxonomy of, of you know, bad behavior and, and, and you know, uh, high school hijinks. How do we determine uh, what constitutes bullying and what is another term that you bring up in the book uh, frequently, drama? That's such a good question. I'm taken with the standard academic definition of bullying because it's limiting in a useful way, I think. And that definition is that behavior becomes bullying when it's physical or verbal harassment or abuse that's repeated over time and involves a power imbalance. So in other words, one kid insulting another kid one time on the playground, that's not bullying that we should necessarily be up in arms about. But when you start to see kids ganging up on one kid over time or a powerful kid in a really cruel way lording it over another kid over time, that can be really quite damaging and that's what we need to pay attention to. Now, we have this tendency of, of portraying that one kid as a, you know, capital B bully. You know, we know, we know Nelson Muntz from The Simpsons is sort of like the, the archetypal, uh, archetypal um, bully. But, but one of the beautiful things that you do in the book is actually break it down and say that there actually isn't such a thing as your typical bully. There are at least five different subcategories. T tell, us, tell us about bullies. Right. So one category is the kind of old-fashioned thug, the boy who steals lunch money. Mm -hmm. That's how I think of it. Another category are kids who may also be kind of thuggish, but it's in a more awkward, like, lashing out way. They may be kids with disabilities who just kind of don't know how to behave right. Then there are kids who are both bullies and victims. They're actually often the most troubled kids who we really need to worry about. There are, is a category of popular bullies, kids who are really quite adept at reading other kids' signals and manipulating them. And they are often the kids whom adults have trouble seeing because they're very good at, at playing up to adults and hiding the mean things they're doing. They often also deploy other kids kind of as their minions. And then the last category for me are kids, I call them, or it's not my word, the other kids call them Facebook thugs. Mm -hmm. These are kids, often girls, who adopt a kind of brasher, meaner online persona and say things online they would probably never say in real life. For the most part, um, we adults... We don't see these distinctions, right? I mean, we, we, we read about bullying case, uh, like the case of Phoebe Prince, and, and we immediately demand uh, justice or, or more likely retribution. Uh, the case of Phoebe Prince in particular, and, and you discuss it at great length in the book and, and before that in your reporting, uh, how did the community react after, after uh, Phoebe Prince's suicide? I would say there was a division in the actual town of South Hadley. Um, there were rumors flying all over the place about the kids who'd been accused of, quote, bullying Phoebe to death. And some of those rumors were true. Phoebe had been called a slut loudly in school that day by um, one girl with two other kids kind of egging her on. And some of the rumors, at least to, my, to me, seemed to be false. Um, so there was a lot of distress about that. But there also, I think, increasingly, as the national news picked up the story and really sensationalized it, there were a lot of of kids at the school who were very confused about the portrayal of their classmates because Phoebe was a girl who had been 
really kind of sought after. And she turned out to be very vulnerable. She turned out to have a history of depression and cutting and attempted suicide. And it is certainly true that, you know, three of the kids really turned on her in the day of her death That was and that was enormously upsetting to her. But the notion that all six kids were kind of – had been relentless bullies for three months, which was the accusation of the district attorney, that seemed like quite a, a kind of different and misleading version of the story to most of the teenagers in South Hadley I talked to. Is there room for district attorneys in, in cases of bullying? I would say almost all the time, no. That essentially, to me, the line that makes sense is between violence and nonviolence. Mean behavior that's not violent is not generally criminal in this country. We do have harassment statutes and, you know, you can think about if there's like really a pattern of essentially coming after someone and stalking them. Okay, maybe that's something we want to address. But I don't think that's really typical of teenage bullying. And so the idea that in particularly this case, you're going to threaten very heavy um, criminal punishments against kids, it seems to me very out of proportion, not only to what they'd actually done, but also to what they could have possibly anticipated the consequences were going to be. And so this is some sort of horrific modern equivalent, a uh, modern day equivalent of, you know, pitchforks and torches. It does have something to that, I think. I mean, again, it's tricky. It's not that these kids were totally innocent. It's So to me, it's not about innocence versus guilt. It's about proportionality. And that's always, I think, a harder distinction to draw because it's this sort of gray area, not black and white. Since this is such an intensely uh, personal topic, uh, allow me a very brief personal story. I was, I was probably um, nine uh, and this boy, two years older and, and many pounds and inches uh, bigger, uh, started sort of routinely bullying me and at some point demanded that I, I hand over some very precious Star Wars action figure. Uh, and, and I sort of went sobbing uh, home to my father, who very calmly uh, looked at me and said, well, here's what you do. The next day you go to school, you seek that kid out, uh, and you punch him until you can punch no more. Uh, I ended up doing that. Uh, it ended up solving a lot of problems in the immediate uh, uh, realm, but also kind of giving me a sense of 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 uh, I'll use a, a, a horrid word uh, empowerment. Uh, did I get terrible advice? Kind of, and yet effective in that situation, right? <laughs> so I actually talk about this in the book and wrestle with it myself. Um, in the context of Monique's story, she was actually taking boxing after she left school. And one day I was talking to her and her mother and her mother said, you know, when you go back to school, if someone gives you a hard time, you're going to just punch that kid, which I understood that impulse. And I did feel like Monique needed to learn how to stand up for herself. You don't necessarily have to do that through physical violence, but once in a while, that can be the currency of the realm, right? Monique said to her mother, I don't fight. Like she just was not the type to turn into a warrior. I, in the book, compare her to Ferdinand the Bull from the children's story mm-hmm. that I really love. She was a peaceful kid. And so I think that when we ask kids to fight back, we have to think about who they are. For some kids, particularly kids who are bigger themselves, it may be that, you know, really standing up for themselves, even physically, does the trick. But there is some solid research that shows that most of the time, if you punch a bully, or even if you just like write back some mean thing on Facebook, you're actually going to make the situation worse because that kid in the end has more power than you have. There's there's another approach uh, to to the same problem, which is which is almost diametrically opposed, which which is mediation. You discuss it in the book. Uh, sit the bully down. In, in one case, I think the case of Jacob, the principal said, "Okay, well, you know, bully and bullied. You now uh, go to my office and for one week just have lunch." 
that doesn't seem to work very well either. Tell us about that approach. Right. Jacob really hated that, as did the kid who was accused of bullying him, actually. They did not want to have lunch together for a week. And you can kind of see the well-intentioned adult impulse here. Well, if these kids just hang out together, then they'll see they're each real people and it'll get better between them. The problem is that that ignores the power imbalance between them. And so often when you use peer mediation in a bullying situation, the kid who's acting like a bully will say in the room exactly what the adults want to hear. He or she knows how to do that. But then as soon as you leave, the other kid is a snitch. I'm going to get you. Yeah. And that is – you're actually making things worse. And so on, on this notion of snitching, uh, is, is there some sort of division uh, about when it is all right or even advisable to talk to adults and when it is better to sort of resolve these issues among your peers? I think the question depends almost entirely on the culture of your school. You know, ideally, you're in a school where when you tell an adult that something's wrong, if it's like a real thing that's wrong and there are kids who are being mean to you, things get better for you. In fact, kids report in surveys that more than half the time, things don't get better Mm. when they report trouble at school. So that's a problem that is really on the adults to fix and change the school culture. And I think that if you're in a school with a fairly combative culture and you start telling the adults every time something's gone wrong, even if that's justified, it can really backfire. And that's one of the things that happened to Monique was that the girls who were being mean mean to her were really outraged that she kept trying to ask for help. And in a better culture school, that would have been a good tactic. But at her school, it just didn't work. This idea about the culture of the school, um, that seems to be a much more difficult thing to change. I mean, I could see legislation being simple. I could see policy and awareness programs and stuff like that. But how do you change the culture of a school? Right. I agree with you. I do not think you can legislate schools into having what's called positive school climate. It's a million intangible things. However, there are these really specific programs and frameworks for addressing them. So, for example, one of the programs I talk about the book, it really is called a framework. It's um, The initials for it are PBIS. And it has this kind of McKinsey approach to schools where the the evaluators come in and they say to the staff and the team they're working with, okay, so where are the problem areas in your school? Where is it that the kids are getting sent to the office all the time? Because getting sent to the office is a bad sign for a school. It means the kids aren't in class learning. It means things are out of control. And so when you start evaluating where all those office referrals are coming from and pushing them down – You have the tools, the kind of nuts and bolts for helping the school become a place where kids are meeting the basic expectations of like sitting and listening and being polite and doing things that then will hopefully translate into this better environment. And another thing that's really crucial is the behavior of the staff. You know, we don't talk about this that much. But when kids see adults snapping at each other or yelling at each other in the hallways, they're going to pick up on that behavior and know they're in a place where it doesn't – it's not valued to be respectful. Just like they would at home. Exactly. Um, speaking of, of, of school-wide programs, what about curricula like um, you know, Facing History in Ourselves that talks about the history of the Holocaust, uh, genocide as a way to sort of teach students to stand up to racism, anti-Semitism, all sorts of, of prejudices? Is there a useful overlap here between teaching what we can call tolerance and, and, and bully prevention? I think there can be. depends on the quality of the program. You just named one that has a really good reputation. But in general, I would say that 
one of the things you're doing with programs like that is getting kids to think about empathy, what it's like to be in someone else's shoes and who they would want to be. You know, I don't mean to overly dramatize this, but when the Nazis came, like who stood up for the Jews and what does it take to be a defender? In very small ways, kids do face those issues when they see bullying and they make a choice about how to handle it. So there are definitely all sorts of or could be correlations between the the historical and the personal. Right. And you could in the, you know, hands of a sensitive teacher with a good curriculum, you could certainly imagine a discussion that took this historical event and kind of brought it to life for the kids by, you know, being careful to differentiate it. We don't want to imagine that, you know, mean kids are exactly like the Gestapo (laughs) and trivializing the Holocaust in that way. From Weimar to junior high. Exactly. You want to be careful. But I do think that when you're talking about the roles people play in situations where they're tested, those are moments that kids have in their everyday lives that they are often eager to talk about. So one thing that that I, I really thought was wonderful about your book is that you don't just write about these stories. You you end the book very clearly with a kind of uh, at least attempt at guide. So walk us through it. Give us give us the short short version. Um, what lessons could we learn here? What do we? What are the key things that we should walk away with uh, with this discussion? Well, one key thing is to think carefully before we label something as bullying. You asked me earlier about the word drama, and kids use that word to describe lots of conflict that is actually pretty mutual in two ways. And so, when you think your kid is being bullied, really like. Check it out. Make sure that you really have all the facts because once you start using that label, you're creating this kind of black and white moral narrative. And if it turns out that there's much more mutual acrimony going on, people may not believe you and that can end up being a problem. So I think there is um, some good reason to use the word sparingly. And then another lesson I hope comes out of my book is that the way that we address bullying is through changing social norms broadly. And that sounds hard and also maybe a little jargony. But what I mean is that when you're in a community where bullying doesn't provide social rewards, isn't respected, kids do it a lot less. There's good research showing that. And when schools do things like surveying the kids, finding out from the kids that most kids are not bullies, are not victims, are not directly involved, and then they put posters on the wall saying, hey, 90% of the kids in this school don't gossip and, you know, gang up on kids online. The other kids see that and they think, hey, I don't need to be doing this either. There's a way in which what kids think is normal behavior, they're more likely to do. So the lesson there, I think, is that it's on everyone, not just schools, not just parents, but everybody kind of coming together and really just like changing the value system. Is there anything uh, websites like or platforms like Facebook could do? You you, you paid them a visit and, and you had a somewhat heated exchange with them. Uh, if, if you were uh, in Zuckerberg, shoes. Uh, what would you do to make it to make you know social media a more pleasant environment, a safer environment for children? Facebook is doing one thing very recently, which I really like, and that is that they've partnered with some social scientists at Yale and Berkeley to change the response flows kids get when they report what they think of as abuse, a photo or a post or a post that's bothering them. And those response flows are becoming much more sensitive to kids' emotions. That's a good thing. One thing I think Facebook could do a lot more of is. Um, 
use its own power for good. So one thing I kind of made a habit of in my reporting was asking kids if they'd rather be suspended from school or from Facebook. And a lot of kids pick school because they really value their Facebook profiles. Facebook knows that. And so Facebook has the power by telling kids to knock it off or in some way, you know, punishing them by, for example, not letting them set up group pages for a month to really affect kids' behavior. And they should use that power for good. So Facebook should be like a parent. Of sorts. It should think of itself, yes, as having this kind of guardian role more than I think actually happens now. And I also think Facebook should do much more to work with schools. I think the company is reluctant to do that because they want to be – they're building brand loyalty among teenagers and schools are uncool. So they don't want to ally themselves, I think, with these kind of – you know, not hip authority figures, but they could really help the schools because often these conflicts kind of start to burn up online and they really affect what's happening in schools. But, you know, principals have too much to do. They cannot be expected to track every kid's Facebook profile. Sure. So let, let me go here from the uh, from the very modern to the thoroughly ancient. You know, I'm, I'm reading your book and, and two words uh, uh, keep coming up, character and empathy. Uh, these, you know, of course, these are foundational notions for for more traditional structures. And 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 hearing character and empathy, it's almost like you know my rabbi's talking. Yes, I think your rabbi could be talking, and that's actually important. Religion isn't the only way that we learn how to behave in the world, but it's one really useful way. So one of my favorite parenting books is by Wendy Mogul. It's called The Blessing of the Skin Knee. And she really uses the Talmud to kind of teach some of the lessons she wants along the way. It's very effective, so effective that um, when I wrote about her for the New York Times Magazine a few years ago, it turned out that parenting groups that weren't Jewish all over the country were using these lessons. It was really kind of awesome. It's a spike in the sales of Talmuds and Amazon all of a sudden. Yeah. Exactly. Who knew? So let me ask you one last and, and, and somewhat terrifying question. You have two sons, right? 13 and 10. Um, writing this book, being immersed in this, in this uh, often terrifying world, has anything changed for you in the way you see your role as a parent or you understand the world of your kids? One thing I think a lot about is how parents should handle their kids' odyssey into the world of technology. You know, there are ways in which it can feel really safe to just – or at least easy to let a kid turn on a computer in his room and, like, go for it. Wherever he ends up, that's where he ends up. But I think it's really important to keep tabs on what's happening. And so the same way I wouldn't let my kids just walk out the door at midnight, I also try to be on top of what's going on. Now, that sounds, I think, probably better than it really is. And we I make mistakes as I go. Um, so a few months ago, my 13-year-old got his first phone, his first cell phone. And we had delayed it as long as we felt like we could. And then we decided to get him a phone that didn't have the internet. We just didn't feel like we wanted him walking around with a computer in his pocket that accessed anything online he wanted. Um, But he can text. And what I didn't do and wish I had was say to him in the beginning, you know, this is a new thing for you, texting. And so just in the beginning to walk you through it, I want to take a look at what you're doing just like so we can talk it through. I didn't say that. But then about a month into it, I realized that he was sending quite a lot of texts and asked to look. And he got really upset and felt like I didn't trust him and that his privacy was being invaded. I don't actually think his privacy was being invaded. I'm paying for the phone. So (laughs) why should he have privacy on it? But I had set up this, um, you know, norm in which 
he did have these expectations. And at that point, I don't think it really was fair to challenge them, or at least I couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that he um, could understand. So that's one example of um, making a mistake, but one that I've been trying to think about and kind of offer up to other people. (laughs) It's hard. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Bazelon is the author of the book Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. It's just out from Random House. Bazelon is also a writer and editor for the online magazine Slate and a senior research scholar at Yale Law School. As always, we would love to hear what you thought of today's conversation. So shoot us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or go to our site and post a comment there. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Leah Leibowitz. Thanks for listening. Please come back next week.